Greetings. Welcome to all those of you who are gathered this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome to guests, members of CBC. Uh, let me also wish you a happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, gentlemen. I will take it. Feel the love. Thank you. Uh, hope that your day so far has been a happy one, and uh, hopefully there's more of the same. Turn in God's Word to the book of Habakkuk, short Old Testament book, but very uh, vivid, very punchy, very striking. I invite you to turn to Habakkuk 2, verses 6 through 20, where we get to the pronouncements of judgment against the cruel, dominant, powerful Babylonian empire. Uh, thus far, uh, the God's prophet Habakkuk has been asking how it's possible for an evil nation like the Babylonians to conquer nations seemingly without any, facing any repercussions or set, setbacks. And God comforts us and comforts Habakkuk by reminding us that judgment is coming. So Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20. Let's hear God's word together. Actually, uh, let me start verse 5b. His greed, his refers to the Babylonians, his greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have despised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake! To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. 
Father, you are exalted, majestic. You reign on high, and there is no power in your creation or universe that can contest your sovereignty. Your decrees will infallibly come to pass. You do as you please in heaven and on earth. You are the Lord. Teach us to stand in awe of you, to adore you, to fear you, not other things. Father, we confess that you have ever been our refuge. Every step of the way in life, you've protected us and guided us. And we confess now that you will be our refuge to the end. Heavenly Father, teach us not to trust in created things for our safety and protection and security. Let us not trust in our money, our relationships, in our gifts and abilities. God, teach us to trust in you for our protection and security. Father, use your word today to expand our awareness of your glory. Uh, we pray that you would manifest your glory as you will one day cause the whole earth to be filled with your majesty. We pray that we would get a glimpse of that today and that we would delight in you. Use your word, we ask, to accomplish your good purposes in our midst. Sanctify us, your people, and grant that those who may not know your son Jesus as their savior, use your word to draw them to yourself. Bless the proclamation of the word this morning, we ask. Amen. Uh, so I suspect that there are many of you who, like me, can remember a time, many, many years ago, uh, Friday evening comes around, and you want to watch a movie. Uh, if that were the case, you, you, what would you do? You'd get in your car, and you would drive to the local Blockbuster, uh, and you would hope, against hope, that they had the video that you wanted, if you knew what you wanted. Uh, you would peruse the shelves, you would engage in chit-chat, perhaps, with the employees there, and then you'd go and pay for your movie and then bring it home, put it in your VCR. Sometimes you'd have to rewind it if the person before you didn't do it. Do you guys remember this? Um, that's how you watched a movie on a Friday evening before there were streaming services. But now, of course, if you want to watch a movie on a Friday night, you click, and there it is. Life has become very convenient and very efficient. Some of you bought your Father's Day gifts like two days ago. Two, three clicks, there it is. A day later, it arrives at your home. Father's Day shopping done. In many ways, modern life is convenient and efficient, but one downside is it makes us impatient. We're accustomed to having things now. Uh, but the best things, the highest things in life, don't come now. We have to wait for them. We have to wait for the Lord to act. So patience for God's people can be difficult. But take heart, that seems to be the case in every age. Habakkuk also wanted God to act now. Uh, we saw in the previous sections of the book that Habakkuk looks at all of the injustice in Judah. Uh, he looks at the Babylonian Empire that is a, you know, 20 years away from destroying the holy city of Jerusalem. They seem to be swallowing all before them. God, you see the wicked prosper. Are you not going to act? And Habakkuk wrongly concludes that because the wicked prosper for a moment, that therefore God won't judge them, that something has gone amiss. And God's answer, as we'll see in this section, is Habakkuk, I care more about injustice than you do. A day of reckoning is coming, but it's going to come according to my timetable. Until it comes, wait. And that's the Lord's uh, word to us this morning. It's coming. The scales of justice will be balanced. Until then, 
wait. There are three things I want us to note in this passage specifically this morning. Number one, God will judge the Babylonians for brutally exploiting other nations. God will judge the Babylonians for brutally exploiting other nations. Two, he will judge them to display his glory. He will judge them to display his glory. Three, he will judge them for their idolatry. Not just the brutal exploitation of nations, but also the worship of other gods, idolatry. He will judge them for their idolatry. So we see then, in the first instance, that God will judge the Babylonians because of the violence that they've done to the nations of the earth. In verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5, the Babylonians are compared to death, to Sheol. The grave is always hungry. Its appetite is insatiable. It wants more and more. So also the Babylonians swallowed up one nation after another. It wanted more and more. Then in verse 6, we're told that a reversal is coming. The people who have been oppressed by Babylon will rise up against Babylon and taunt their oppressor when they see the judgment of God falling on Babylon. And their, their taunt against Babylon is given to us in verses 7 through 20. You have five woe oracles. You see that word come up multiple times, five times in this passage. And it indicates that the judgment of God against the wicked is coming. Woe to them. First woe section is in verses 6 through 8. And it teaches that the plunderer will be plundered. The plunderer will be plundered. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. The picture here is of Babylon arrogantly traveling through the world, taking treasure that doesn't belong to it through violence. The treasured possessions of the nations belong to Babylon. In the previous chapter, we saw how Babylon enjoys a life of luxury, eats rich food because of the oppression of the nations. But God's judgment is coming on Babylon for taking what doesn't belong to it. Their uh, pillaging and plundering of the peoples is compared to going into debt. They load themselves with pledges. They sign all of these IOU notes. And the idea is that all of the stuff that they take from the nations through their violence and strength, it will one day be paid for. It's like a debt. It will have to be paid. These IOUs will have to be addressed. And their creditors will suddenly arise. In verse 7, the ESV translates the word debtors, but I think the NIV is actually correct in this case, and we should translate the Hebrew word as creditors. Will not your creditors suddenly arise? And the idea is that all of these nations to which Babylon owes a debt because they've been plundered, all of these nations will one day rise up against Babylon and demand that the debt be paid, that justice be paid. And then Babylon will become spoil. They will be plundered by the nations that they have plundered. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. God is saying that those who take what they want from others through violence will themselves be plundered by others, will themselves be judged. This is what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, 
to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? You've exploited the weaknesses of the widows and the orphans in society. You have taken from them because they could not withstand you. You've plundered them. But the day of judgment is coming, and you will give an account. And that's the case for Babylon as well. The, right, the wicked in Scripture are f- frequently portrayed as those who uh, exploit others for their selfish gain. The wicked squeeze the life out of other people. The wicked use others for their own selfish advantages. They plunder. They don't pay back the wages that they owe their workers. They take and they take and squeeze the life out of people. And when they've used someone up, they toss them aside. That's the wicked. The righteous, however, live by a different principle. Whereas the wicked take and take, the righteous give and give. Those who follow Jesus Christ and confess him as their Lord ought to be characterized by a willingness to make life hard on themselves so as to make it easier for others. The principle is, I will lay down my life for yours. I am going to spend myself, my time, my resources, my money to bring relief to you. That's the principle of the Christian life. How can I give of myself to enhance your life? Not, how can I take from you more and more? As you assess your own life, which of these two principles characterizes your conduct? Are you someone who delights to use the advantages, the gifts, the opportunities God has given to you to enhance the lives of other people? Or are you a taker? Do you exploit and want others to give and give uh, to you? And you take and take, but you never give back. Our conduct should be the conduct and the uh, lifestyle of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 10.45 teaches, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to squeeze the life out of people. Jesus came into this world to spend himself for others. He lived on the principle of emptying himself out to make others rich. And he spent and he spent himself until, until he finally gave even his life for his people. He died in their place. That's the principle of the Christian life. We surrender our rights, our resources, our desires to enhance the lives of others. And we discover the the truthfulness of the words of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So the woe is called down upon the Babylonians because they take what doesn't belong to them. The next woe section calls down God's judgment on them Uh, and on those who seek safety through oppression. Those who seek safety through oppression will find death, verses 9 through 11. The picture here is of somebody building a house and trying to make it very secure so it's not susceptible to attack. Uh, Just as the eagle builds its nest very high up in the trees to make it impervious to predators, so also the Babylonians are pictured here as building their house high up so that it will be impervious to harm. And house here is a metaphor for their empire. They are conquering the nations, defeating others, swallowing up the peoples around them to keep themselves safe, to keep themselves secure. And the idea is that through their wickedness, through the conquest of other nations, they will be protected, their life will be spared. But here's the irony, says the prophet, 
You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. You're trying to protect your life. You're trying to save yourselves through the trampling of the nations, but actually your life will be cut off. The house that you are building will cry out against you, verse 11. You heard the expression, if these walls could speak. In verse 11, the walls are crying out to God. Their empire is crying out to God and saying, God, this is not just. This is an empire built on blood and bones and the oppression of the innocent. It's not right. God, act. The irony is that the wickedness they commit to protect themselves ends up being their downfall. Wickedness is self-defeating. We need to internalize this. Uh, Many nations, many people uh, reject the laws of God, do their own thing because they think that by rebelling against the Lord, by walking in wickedness, they will enhance their life. And what they discover is not sweetness and delight, but ruin and misery and death. This is captured well in the book of Proverbs. Listen well, brothers. Proverbs 5, 3 through 4. The lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, as sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. In the first instance, this is a reference to lust, the enticements of the adulteress, her honeyed speech that entices. But understand that on the other side of the promise of pleasure, a sharp sword is going to be run through your liver. There is pain and bitterness and resentment. And that's a picture of all temptation, frankly. Wickedness whispers to us like the forbidden woman says, hey, if you reject the law of the Lord, you'll experience safety, security, life. And the end is always bitterness. The path of rebellion brings death and misery. Do you believe that? That's the second woe oracle. And then the image changes in verses 15 and 16 again. The picture here is of of someone who dupes their neighbor into drinking too much and looks upon their nakedness, humiliates them, takes advantage of them by having them drink too much. And that's a picture of Babylon's humiliation of the nations. They have poured out the cup of their wrath on the nations and humiliated the nations. And so God says, you will have your shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. You will be exposed. Your uncircumcision will be on display to the nations. Just as you humiliated others, you too will be humiliated. The violence that you did to others will come back on your own head. Notice the refrain in verse 8 and verse 17. The blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell dwell in them. The Babylonians, a cruel and fierce people, crushed their opponents, destroyed those who were weaker than them. They built their empire on blood and bones of their victims. And God is saying that the violence they afflicted, uh, brought upon the nations, will come back on their own head and they will be destroyed. So here's God's answer to Habakkuk and to us. God, do you see what's going on? See what's going on? Are you not going to act? God's answer is, I see what's going on, I hate it, and in my time, I am going to perfectly pour out my judgment on all of the wickedness that you see. Habakkuk in 1.3 asks, why do, you make, why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? 
God, I'm looking at the world, I'm looking specifically in Judean society, and the wicked are prospering, at least in the moment. Don't you care? 113, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the, the man more righteous than he? The Babylonians, we're bad, God. Babylonians are worse. Why are you using them to destroy us in 20 plus years? That's not right. And so Habakkuk's error consists in looking at the present form of the world, looking at the way things are, and saying the wicked seem to be prospering, the righteous are being oppressed, God, don't you care? And the problem is that his time frame is too narrow. And God responds by saying, Habakkuk, I care about justice more than you. And a day is coming, I'm sharpening my sword, and a day is coming when the wicked of the earth will face my judgment in its full fury. The waters of judgment are building and building behind the dam. But a day is coming when the dam is going to break, and the wrath of God will flood onto the earth, and all of the wicked will perish. That day is coming, so be patient. This is what keeps us from being controlled by rage when we experience injustice in this world, when we are victimized by others. This is what keeps us from losing heart and despairing when we see the senseless violence in society around us. What enables us to persevere and endure is the recognition that God in his robes will sit on the throne of the universe and he will pronounce judgment against the wicked. And his justice will be displayed before the whole universe. Every wrong will be righted. The cry of the afflicted and the victims will be heard. And knowing that that's coming gives us the strength to endure. Did you notice how throughout this passage there's the crime fits the punishment? Uh, the plunderer is plundered. Those who humiliate others are humiliated. Those who are violent, or violent have violence done to them. And the idea here is that there is an exact symmetry between wrongdoing and God's punishment on it. God, God's judgment on wickedness won't be an approximation of what the wicked deserve. There will be an exact correspondence between the guilt of the wicked and the punishment that God inflicts upon them. And when we see God's justice vindicated on the last day, we will be satisfied. There will be a sense of infinite relief when every last wrong is righted by God. And because we know that day of justice and judgment is coming, we endure. We don't pick up the sword. We don't lust for blood because we know God will make all things right. This gives us the strength to avoid being controlled by rage and anger and despairing. Now, sometimes the Christian view of God as a just God who punishes sin is criticized as promoting violence. And the idea is if, if God uses harsh punishments to punish the wicked, doesn't that encourage his people to do the same? And I would argue just the reverse is true. If you don't believe that at the end of history, God will punish the wicked, and you are wronged by someone in the present, what are you going to do? You're going to pick up the sword and go after them. What causes you to put down the sword? The recognition that God will intervene and make every wrong right. That's what makes nonviolence, non-retaliation possible. Be believing in a just God actually makes it possible not to give way to vengeance in a cycle of violence and retaliation. Uh, Tim Keller, in his uh, excellent book, Reason for God, puts it this way. The human impulse 
To make perpetrators of violence pay for their crimes is almost an overwhelming one. It cannot possibly be overcome with platitudes like, now don't you see that violence won't solve anything? If you have seen your home burned down and your relatives killed and raped, such talk is laughable and it shows no real concern for justice. If I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I am sure that there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. And Keller's right. He's making the point that it's, it's precisely because we believe that there is justice at the end of human history, that God will judge the wicked, that can, we can restrain our actions and not take vengeance before it's time. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So that's the first thing. God will indeed judge evildoers. It may not be according to our timeline. Uh, we might see the wicked prospering for a moment, but we shouldn't hastily conclude that God doesn't care. We sh- what we should conclude is that God has his day when he will make all things right. Second thing to notice then is that God will judge the wicked so he can fill the earth with his glory. The picture in verse 14 is that there is going to be this massive flood where God's goodness and beauty and majesty is going to cover everything. Violence is not ultimately going to cover the earth, as in verse 8. It's not violence and evil that will cover the earth. That will be judged and cast out. What will cover the earth is the glory of the Lord. Before that, in verse 13, we are told that these evil empires labor to build up their empires in vain. Their efforts to build an impenetrable fortress is in vain. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire? So these empires, like the Babylonians, they plot and they scheme and they use slave labor to build these astonishing cities and and they build their empire. But God is saying, I'm going to frustrate all of their plans and purposes. I'm going to bring all of that to nothing. Their empire will become an ash heap. It will be a puff of smoke. I have decided that their purposes will not stand. My purposes will stand And every evil empire, regardless of how impressive it seems in the moment, will fall and the purposes of God will be accomplished. Now there are perhaps some among us who are uh, overly tempted, perhaps, to take conspiracy theories uh, seriously. Some of you perhaps think that human history unfolds according to the plan of well-dressed men in a smoky room, men wearing a three-piece suit, making decisions about the world. Those are the people in charge. I want you to look at verse 13 very carefully. What is being underscored is the fact that God's in control. All of this impressive planning and scheming and all of this labor and all the machinery of empire will produce zero because it is the will of the Lord to bring it all to nothing. Do you know what the Lord does want? Verse 14, the Lord is going to heal this creation and the created order is going to become what it was always meant to be, a clear window through which the majesty and greatness of God shines forth, and we see God as we long to see him. The word glory here uh, refers to the external or outward manifestation of God's greatness and majesty. God is saying there's a day coming 
when my beauty, greatness, is going to completely submerge the earth. The earth will be drowned. The creation will be drowned in my majesty. Uh, all the darkness will have passed, and we will then see God, the triune God, in the fullness of his splendor. We will see the bright radiance of his beauty in a way that we can't even fathom right now. That's God's plan for human history. We take comfort not merely because God will judge the wicked. We take comfort because a day is coming when God is going to display his splendor to the whole world and all of his creatures who are in that world will see and delight in God and reflect that glory to others. That's really what we long for, isn't it? More than a new creation where there isn't heartache and pain, uh, more than living forever, what do we really want? We want God. We want to look at last on the face that satisfies the deepest longing of our heart. We want to see the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus. And one day that's going to happen. Right now we see dimly through a glass darkly by faith, but then we will see God as he is. And we will rejoice and all will be right. So in this dark world where we experience injustice and pain and suffering, we look forward to that day when perfect justice will be done. But we also look forward to that day where the brightness of God's greatness will fill everything. And we will truly know what it means to be alive. The book of Revelation, chapter 22, uh, verses 22 through 23 says it this way. So it, it, the, the Bible, the book of Revelation, ends with the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. And this is the description. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. In other words, the new city doesn't need a temple because the whole thing is a temple. Everywhere you go, you are in God's sacred presence. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That day is coming. That's what we long for, uh, and that's what strengthens us to press on. Third thing to note, God will judge the Babylonians for their idolatry. We saw how they are judged because they've exploited the nations. But now, there is a woe directed at them because of their idolatrous practices, the worship of false gods. So what is an idol? Uh, in the first instance, uh, an idol is a statuette especially people in the ancient world, would prostrate themselves before they would bow down before a statue that represented some false god. Idolatry is the worship of a false god and even the representation of that false god. To be an idolater is to worship some other god, some god other than the god revealed in Scripture. But in Habakkuk, there is also a broader conception of idolatry. So idolatry refers narrowly to worshiping the representation of a false god, but it also refers to anything that you trust in as the fundamental source of your security. Anything that you trust in as the fundamental source of your security. Anything that you look at and you say, if I get that, then I'll be safe. Then I will be protected. Then I won't need to fear. So you see this, for instance, in Habakkuk 1.11. Here's how the prophet characterizes the Babylonians. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Notice in this instance, it's their military prowess that is their God. They are trusting in their military strength 
to keep them safe. And that fundamental trust is what they are worshiping. Habakkuk 1.16, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury. Now, as we saw last week, the picture here is Babylon is being compared to a fisherman. And the fisherman puts his net in the sea and has this rich catch. And so what does the fisherman do? He starts worshiping his net, because through the net he has a, a rich meal and luxurious living. Well, in the same way, Babylon worship, worships her military prowess because that's the thing that she trusts in to rescue her. That's where her confidence lies. So anything that you look to as the fundamental source of your security in life, that is your functional God. It could be the God of Scripture, the Lord of heaven and earth, or it could be some created thing like a relationship, like your wealth, like your career, like your network. It could be any number of things. But whatever your heart says, I, I am protected and safe because of this. That is your functional God. And Habakkuk goes on to teach us that every God other than the one true and living God will ultimately fail us. Notice the rhetorical question. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? If you're trusting in something other than God, it will fail you. It will not provide the security, the satisfaction you hoped it would. One common idol that we bow down before and trust in instead of the living God, according to Scripture, is our wealth, our money. We think that our money will keep us safe when we experience unexpected circumstances in life. This is our refuge. For example, in Job 31, verses 24 and 28, he says, If I had made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, I would have been false to God above. And the idea is that that is indeed a temptation, to prostrate yourself before wealth and say, oh, now I'm safe, I have money. We recognize money can't do a thing for you, wealth can't do a thing for you when you're on your deathbed. It can't cleanse your conscience of guilt, it can't wash you of your sin, it can't prepare you for the life to come, it provides no real and lasting security. Moreover, money can't buy you the best things in life, love, joy, peace, Self-control, these things the Bible attributes to the Holy Spirit. These are not things you can buy. These are things that God freely gives to those who trust in him. And wealth, like everything else in this world, to use a biblical picture, sprouts wings and flies away. Wealth uh, is temporary. It's passing. You can't rely on it. When you need your savings account to be there for you, to be your rock and refuge, it's empty. Everything other than God, including our wealth, won't finally save us. They can't profit because they are teachers of lies. What does that mean? It means that if you're trusting in something other than God, you're deluded. You think you're safe and protected. In fact, you're very vulnerable, just like the Babylonians. You think you're strong, but you're weak. And in addition, an idol is a teacher of lies in the sense that it distorts your perception of reality. What you worship as your supreme good shapes your perception of what is wise and what is foolish, of the way the world works. That's why, for example, in the book of Proverbs, we're told that the fear of the Lord, reverence, worship of the true and living God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You can know what is wise and what is foolish only in the context of worshiping the true God. Whatever God, even if it's not the true God, whatever God you worship as your supreme good will shape your perception of what is wise and what is foolish. 
what is right and what is wrong. Let me give you an example. Who is the supreme wealth worshiper in English literature in the 19th century? Charles Dickens. Christmas Carol. Which character am I talking about? Let's see. Ebenezer Scrooge, thank you. I knew we'd get it. Had confidence. Uh, Ebenezer Scrooge is like the supreme wealth worshiper in, uh, in English literature. And there's a scene in the Christmas Carol where his nephew comes to his office right on the eve of Christmas. And he wants to invite his uncle Scrooge to a Christmas party that they're going to have. We're going to celebrate. It's going to be great. Why don't you join us? And Scrooge snarls and is irritated. Whoa, don't be cross, uncle, said the nephew. What else can I be, returned the uncle, that is Scrooge, when I live in such a world of fools as this? Christmas, out upon Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money, a time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer? Now, notice why he thinks his nephew is a fool. Because his nephew can celebrate and be festive even though he doesn't have money. And to Scrooge, that's inconceivable. The one great good that there is in life is money and wealth. And people who celebrate and are festive when they're poor don't make any sense to him. That seems foolish. The wise person is diligent about their business. What you hold up as your supreme standard, your supreme good, shapes how you perceive the world, shape, shapes what you de decide is wise and what you decide is foolish. That's why the path to wisdom begins with the worship of the true God. He alone can keep us from error. Idols can't save because, well, because they're your creation. Its maker trusts in, its, in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Think about it. I'm creating something. Pagans would have uh, chiseled away at their idol. I have given existence to this idol, and now I am going to look to this idol to save me. There's a bit of humor, a bit of irony here. Certainly irony that's exploited greatly in the book of Isaiah. The pagan takes his log, cuts half of it, and fashions his god and prostrates himself before that god. And then he takes the other log and throws it in the fire and bakes his bread. Not seeing the problem and inconsistency. And the idea is that it's utterly absurd to trust in the thing you have made. Trust in your maker, not the thing you have made. Trust in the one who can actually help you. And we need to understand that we are just as foolish, just as perverse, when we trust in our money and the works of our hands. When we say, oh, I'm safe and secure because my bank account is increasing. We are just as foolish. We are trusting in the thing that we have created for ourselves. Now, a crucial question is this. How do I know that I'm trusting in something other than the true God as my real security and protection in life. How can you tell? And one key indicator is to look at the things that spark strong, visceral, negative emotions. So for example, how do you respond when you discover that there's an unexpected expense in your home? The AC is out and has to be replaced. Car has to be fixed, the refrigerator's done. Gas prices are an all-time high. Do you complain? Do you say, man, every time it seems like I make a little bit of progress, something happens and throws off my plans for financial prosperity. Do you complain? Do you get angry? Do you blow up at your spouse and say, we talked about the budget and you're not sticking to it? Do you respond with anger? Complaining? 
Strong negative emotions like that often reveal what we are clinging to as our real hope and real protection. And it is folly to trust in anything other than God himself. Now, the thing about idols is they make life difficult, but as bad as that is, the real reason we should abhor the worship of anyone or anything other than God is because to worship a false god is to despise the living God. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. When we put our trust in something other than God, we are saying to the true God, you are not good and you are not powerful and you are not trustworthy. I need to put, build my life on something other than you to feel safe. And there is a contempt for the glory of God when we worship something other than him. Instead of trusting in created things, Habakkuk invites us to trust in the Lord. 18 and 19, verses 18 and 19 have been teaching us, idols can't do anything for you. They're a dead end. They lead to self-deception. But verse 20 tells us uh, that there is one who can do something for us. Note the contrast. Idols profit nothing, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The temple here refers not to the earthly temple, but to his exalted place in the universe in heaven. God is the maker of heaven and earth. He reigns supreme. Stand in awe. Be silent before his majesty. He is the one who can actually help his people. He is a refuge to those in trouble. If you want to be free from being anxious about money, anxious about what's going to happen in the future, and being enslaved to what other people think or don't think about you. Freedom from idols comes from trusting in the Lord of heaven and earth. Come before him, fear him, stand in awe of him. And when you fear God and stand in awe of him, all these other things that control your heart, that bring fear to you, you'll be free from. When you fear God, you won't, free, you, you won't fear adverse circumstances, people's approval. You will walk in the freedom that comes from trusting in him not those things. The bottom line is this. God is our refuge and our strength, and if we belong to him, we are utterly safe. He, will, he has protected us every moment of our life, and he will protect us to the end. So if you know the one true and living God, you are safe. You don't need to run to other things to protect you. Look at his majesty. Look at his greatness. And you need to understand that Idols are not simply removed. Idols are replaced. You can't just get rid of an idol. You have to replace it with something else, and you replace it by worshiping the true and living God. Here's how Isaiah depicts the greatness of our God. Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 18. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighted the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and, and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? And the message is clear. God is incomparably great. When you see that, 
when you fear him and revere him, you won't be enslaved by God's substitutes. Worship God, put him at the center of your life, and walk in the fear of the Lord. And then you too will be able to stand in dark times of difficulty because your confidence is not finally in circumstances, but in the Lord who controls circumstances. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would teach us to depend more upon you, to rest in your saving power, not in our own. Grant us to know the freedom, the joy, and the life that come from depending on you. Teach us to fear you, not created things. Father, we live in a dark world, a fallen world, where there is much sorrow, injustice, and misery, but you have given us a lamp in dark places, even your word, Help us to cling to it and wait patiently for the day of the great reversal. Amen.